0: Welcome to the Homeschooling Workshop cassette tape series. This is tape number two, entitled, The Battle for Your Child. Our instructor is Mr. Greg Harris, author of The Christian Homeschool and director of Christian Life Workshops. If you have further questions regarding Christian homeschooling, please write to us at Christian Life Workshops, 180 Southeast Kane Road, Gresham, Oregon. 970-80. We will be glad to send you a resource packet of information to help you teach your children successfully at home. The packet is free for the asking, but if you can do so, please include one dollar to cover our postage and handling. In this second introductory session, Greg will present the biblical purpose for having and raising children and explain who is fighting for control over your child's education. And now here's Greg with The Battle for Your Child.
1: We've seen too many burned-out missionary kids to go down that path again. And so the men responded, notice they're still thinking about what he said in the last overhead, wicked thing, do not do this wicked thing. And they didn't even hear this. They just ignored all of that and they suddenly realized, you're judging us. Who are you to tell us what's wicked? And notice how they respond. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. See how, the, how humanists just cannot stand the suggestion that there is an absolute right and wrong in the universe and that they'll someday be held accountable for it. And so, they said, Now we're going to treat you worse than them. We're going to rape you. And they kept pressing on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. About that time, one angel leaned over to the other and said, I haven't counted ten. Have you counted ten? <laughs> you know, and they hadn't, so they, they pulled Lot back inside, and, and then we get into an inventory here. Who else do you have here? Now, I believe that God briefs his angels when he sends them on a mission, Okay. So these angels shouldn't have to be asking questions like, um, How many kids do you have? Any pets? You know, this is not uh, like uh, Allied band lines or something. This is the raid on Entebbe. And so these guys are not asking these questions in order to, to take inventory so much as to get this young father to come back to reality. Notice how specific the questions are. The men said a lot. Whom else do you have here? A son-in-law. That is singular in the original Hebrew. Singular. That means there's a married daughter somewhere in town. And the next question, and your sons, and that is plural in the Hebrew. That's at least two. It's 11 o'clock, Lot. Do you know where your boys are tonight? And he didn't know. And your daughters. We know he has two daughters in the house at least. And whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. We're about to destroy this place. It takes as much faith for Lot to believe that these two men, what seem to be men, could destroy these two large cities, as it would have taken for Noah to believe that God could judge the world with a flood. So we have the same trial of faith, don't we? And so we find Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, and they were... who were to marry his daughters. He said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Come on, Lot. There you go again. You're always trying to save the city. Down there in the gates, you know, lobbying, picketing, marching. Lot, you're always trying to fix something, aren't you? Always out there spending yourself, trying to poke your nose and force your convictions on other people. They didn't take him seriously. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But now he hesitated. Noah worked, from what we can tell, about 120 years building that ark. Lot doesn't make it through one night without doubting his salvation. But aren't you glad you served the God of Lot? Because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And our salvation does not depend upon our good works. It does not depend upon our ability to be faithful, but rather upon His grace, His compassion, and His willingness to be strong in us. And so, the men seized His hand, and the hand of His wife, and the hands of His daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon them, and they brought him out of the city. And it came about when they brought them outside, they said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. Now, you may be able to get your wife out of the city, but you may have a little difficulty getting the city out of your wife because she had developed a real love for that place, and so she looks back and she became a pillar of salt. You may recall that in Luke 17, verse 32 and 33, the Lord says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so we know from what our Lord is saying that what was in Lot's wife's mind at that point was, my life is back there. See, we have catalogs. It's not so bad for us to leave a place like that. They didn't have catalogs. They didn't have mass transit systems so you could just go and come. She was leaving everything behind. And Jesus said, that's what God counted unworthy to enter the kingdom. And so God is the one who judged her. And she was turned into a pillar of salt as a monument to worldliness and the foolishness of loving this world's goods. You may be able to get your daughters out of that age segregated peer group, but you may have a little difficulty getting your your daughters to leave behind the values, the attitudes, the sense of right and wrong that they picked up from that group. Later in the cave they said, let's get our father to drink wine and lie with him and preserve our family lying through our father. Great, let's use incest in order to have a family. Maybe they learned that in the values clarification class in Sodom and Gomorrah High School. Because I'm sure they allowed homosexual teachers there. You see, we're dealing with a very, very predictable consequence of living in a city with that kind of an environment. And these two daughters succeeded, folks. They raised up two boys. Moab, who became the father of the Moabites, and ben who was the father of the Ammonites? And those of those, those of you who know your Bible know that these two men, these two men became the fathers of two tribes, and those two tribes became major enemies of Israel, with thorns in their side for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. You may not live to see the impact that your children and your children's children will have in this world, but God already sees it. Anyone can count the seeds in an apple. But we're serving a God who counts the apples in a seed. When He says to you, aim that child. You may not think that child's so hot. You may not think he's got great potential. He may seem to be slow and addled to you. But folks, He may light the world someday if you just give Him the right training. Send Him in the right direction. God's given that child to you as an arrow and He's saying to you, aim that child for life. And usually the greatest men in this world are not appreciated when they're young. They're not usually even appreciated in their lifetime. But when they have done their task, fulfilled their purpose, then the world looks back and sees the tremendous gift that some mother and father gave to this world as they aimed a child that was given to them by God faithfully. We're part of that process. It would be easy for us to write off Lot as just... A loser, a rogue from the rogues' gallery of the Old Testament. But the Apostle Peter will not permit us, the Holy Spirit will not permit us to write him off in that way because three times in the book of Second Peter, we have Lot referred to as a righteous man. A righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. What does that mean? That means Lot was a man who cared. He was offended by what was going on. He was probably in the gates of the city trying to change things. Now, this is a very delicate point I'm trying to make right now. Lot was a man with tremendous burden to try to change the course of the city. He was offended by the sin that was rampant around him. But why did Lot lose his entire family to the influence of Sodom, the judgment, or the influence of his daughters? The answer is that in all of his good intentions, Lot was a righteous man, respected least by those who knew him best. Lot was a man who allowed himself to get ahead of himself who was trying to change things beyond his control and beyond his responsibility, and he neglected the things that were his responsibility and that were under his control. And when we do a little bit of arithmetic, we come to a pretty frightening conclusion that within, according to the plurals and the singulars of the questions that the angels asked in that passage, There is a minimum of ten people within the circle of Lot's influence. Is it possible that if this righteous man had devoted himself to being respected most by those who knew him best, he could have set the stage for God to spare the the entire city? Do we serve a God who would allow us to accomplish more for Him by doing less? But by making that that we do, His will for us at this particular time, in this particular place, in this particular season in our lives. I believe that your children... And your family responsibilities are not in any way an obstacle to you fulfilling the will of God in your life. When God is looking with a big plan, He goes looking for a family man. When God has a really big plan, He looks for a faithful family man. Notice that Abraham was chosen in order to direct his children. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Tomorrow I'm going to be sharing a session. I hope you dads will change whatever you have to change in your schedule to try to be here, at least for that one session. We're going to deal with homeschool hazards. And they are... Passive dads, active toddlers, and teacher burnout. And those three hazards do, by the way, relate to one another. Mothers who have active toddlers, but who also have active supportive dads don't usually end up in teacher burnout. But it's when we combine all three that it's overwhelming. And I believe that it's dads that can make the difference by managing their households rather than letting their households manage them. By taking charge and equipping and supporting their wives in specific and practical ways. And I'm going to get real specific, see? Controversially specific. Selected to manage a household. Do you notice that in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 through 5, we read, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Where does a man learn to teach today? Do you learn that in a seminary? I know a lot of men who have graduated from seminary and still who struggle with the teaching task. I find the more I'm in this thing that you try to sit down and teach anything to a three-year-old, and you'll learn how to teach. That all the things you have to deal with in trying to get that three-year-old to listen, to follow you, to understand the gentleness that you need, the patience that you need, the firmness that you need, all the things that you need, you're going to need those same kind of skills if you ever become a pastor, because you're going to deal with all those same characteristics in grown-up people who are still acting like that three-year-old. The fact is, people are people. And a man who can manage his own household and teach his children is a man who's moving toward being ready to take on some other responsibility. It says he's not given to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. I don't believe that that means he's broke. I don't believe that it means that he doesn't Understand the importance of being a good steward. In fact, I believe more to the contrary that it's a man who, who has learned that God is faithful to bless the work of his hands and therefore he has no need to, to love money because he's got a God who's better than money. He's a man who's learned how to be a channel of God's blessing and he's not holding a lot to himself but rather he's willing to distribute not because it's a tax advantage, but because it's a kingdom advantage. He's willing to give because he's creating allies and and loyal fellows that are going to stand beside him someday in a major battle. He's using this world's mammon in order to achieve kingdom goals. And I don't believe that always means sending it in to somebody else. I think it means investing in your own household, equipping your own household to be the embassy of the kingdom of God that God wants it to be. And if you'll do that, then you're moving toward being prepared and ready to take charge of other responsibilities. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Now, we've all seen it done with no dignity at all. The man who has to scream at his kids to get them to pay attention. But let me tell you something. If you have to scream at your children to get them to listen to you and to follow any of your counsel, you will also end up having to scream at your church in order to get them to follow you. And even then, it it probably won't succeed. You see, a man who can lead by his example... A man who people say, I'm going to listen to what he has to say because if I do, maybe someday I can be more like him. I can have a household like his household. I can have kids a little bit more like his kids. You want to know when you're really competent and really qualified, when you can really teach and really be gentle and really be uncontentious and all of these things, when you can teach anything to your wife, you're about to graduate. Because that's where it's at, isn't it? A man who manages not just his children, but his household well. Who leads by his example. A man, can I say it again? Respected most by those who know him best. And you can't fake it with your family, can you? You can fake it with the church sometimes. You can fake it in a single sermon when you're candidating to get a pastorate. You can fake it in all these other settings, but you can't fake it with your family. And if a man is managing his household faithfully, we're on good, solid ground for giving him responsibility to manage the affairs of the church. And I believe the key to success in child training is not found in spending more time with your children. That's the big lie of the day. You have to spend more time with your kids. No, you don't. In fact, if you do, it will probably accomplish nothing. The key to success in child training is in letting your children spend more time with you while you're being wise. Remember, those who walk with the wise grow wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. What's happening today is many dads, out of a sense of guilt, are saying, Well, I haven't done anything with the kids lately. I'm going to drop out of my normal routine of being wise. And I'm going to go over here and spend a little time with my kids doing what they want to do. So who's whose companion now? Who's calling the shots? Are they growing up or are you growing down? I believe that this principle alone opens up all kinds of opportunity for you to apprentice your children in the Christian life. To figure out what should you be doing today and then take your children with you as you do it. To let them be with you. And so, we close tonight with an invitation to be wise. Wisdom is not something that you can just gain by studying. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift that begins when we come to God in a realization that we need Him. All night long we've been dealing with different aspects of child training. But have you noticed that every point along the line, it's not been the children that's the issue, but rather you as parents. Because it's your palate that's going to be the first one that tastes. You can't touch the palate of your child with something worth sharing unless you're chewing on something. You've got to taste it first. You've got to be chewing on it first. Then you can share it with your children. And you can't touch the palate of a child with something that's distasteful to you. You can't instill in them a love for something you won't love or won't learn to love. Proverbs 13.20 He who walks with the wise grows wise but a companion of fools will suffer harm. If you're running from God, let me tell you something, if your children spend time with you, then they're the companions of a fool. If you're walking away from God's plan for your life and rejecting the counsel of His Word, then your children will be companions of fools within their own home. It's time for you to be the wise person that God wants them to walk with. And in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6-7, through it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's where it begins. God is not automatically approving of all parenting in this world. Did you know that? He's saying, first, these things should be on your heart. Then I want you to teach them to your children. And for us to automatically assume that every parent is automatically qualified to be the parent that they're supposed to be is foolishness. None of us are qualified until God makes us qualified and he makes us qualified when we come to him in faith. In the very heart of the Bible is John 3:16. If there was a nutshell verse in the Bible, I believe this is it. And although many of you learned this when you were children in Sunday school, it's time for you to realize the Sunday school version of the gospel is probably not adequate to deal with the things you have to face today. There is a larger thing. Jesus Christ is not hanging on the cross anymore. Neither is he a little baby in a manger anymore. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And if you look into the book of Revelation, you get a little bit of a glimpse of what he looks like now. He's not meek and mild Jesus with a sheep around his neck anymore. He's a king. And it says that he will break the jaws of the nations with a rod of iron. And God so loved the world that He gave His only, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is not the life you get later, it's the life you receive right now when you put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. We read in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 12, 13, and 15. And I saw the dead, great and small. I don't care how big your bank account is or how small it is. Great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. You can go spread your ashes over the waters if you want. You're still going to be standing there someday. And Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. If any man was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. According to the Greek... The same words that are translated that Jesus Christ will be Lord forever and ever are the same words that are translated that hell will burn forever and ever. So those who think that hell won't last forever, well, hell will last as long as Jesus is Lord, and Jesus will be Lord as long as hell burns. So you figure that out. There is no annihilation, there is no universalism here, there's judgment. And who will pay your debt to God? When the books are open, I somehow can't help but think of that as some kind of an accounting book. And in that book somewhere, there's going to be a listing like this, and there's Greg Harris' name, and the offense, folks, I've got news for you, I have sinned before God and man. I have sinned. I'm guilty. And the penalty of that sin is death, for the wages of sin is death. But you see, your name is here as well. And you have sinned. And the wages of your sin is also death. But notice there's another name in the books. Jesus Christ. In his offense, there is none. He committed no sin. The penalty that is due for what Jesus did, there is none. He committed no sin. But notice, he died. That means there's an extra death in the books. A death for which there is no corresponding debt and so it can be transferred to some other account where it's needed. And so God is giving you a chance to transfer Jesus' death, just as I have done, to your account. And when you do, you also transfer your life To his account. Some would separate the two and say that in the one's decision Jesus becomes my Savior, and in the other He becomes my Lord. But it's difficult for me in reading the Scriptures to separate the two. I cannot see how we can have a Savior who is not the Lord. And so, as it says, in that He died for all, that those who live should not henceforth live for themselves, but unto Him who died for them and rose again. We don't live for ourselves as Christians. That's what I was talking about earlier. We don't do things because we want to get saved, but we do these things because we are saved. And if there's nothing in us that wants to do what we were created to do before God, then I question the legitimacy of the transfer of His death to our account. Bring forth fruit. That's evidence that repentance has taken place. As James says, faith without works is dead. We have to energize what we say we believe by confessing Him with our mouths, by not denying Him before men, and by designing the kind of lifestyle that most adequately lets us be what He called us to be in this world. The reason that we see so few of us making the impact we should have is because we have allowed ourselves to fall in to the fallacy that Jesus can be our Savior without being our Lord. Tonight, if you've never made this transaction, if you've never applied Jesus' death to your account, if you've never made the decision, I'd like to give you the opportunity to stop being so foolish tonight to be that wise person, to have these things on your heart and to have something to go home chewing on tonight that's worth sharing with your children. And so if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, I would like you to stand where you are saying, Greg, I don't understand it all, but I understand enough to know I need God. I need a Savior. I won't make it without Him. My family is not going to make it without Him. My children are not going to be what they're supposed to be if I won't bow my knee to my Master. So if you're here tonight and that's your situation, would you be so humble as to just stand where you are and say, I need the Savior. I need Jesus tonight. And I want to be a Christian. Right now, would you stand? If that's you, please just stand right now. Anyone at all. I believe that God is dealing with some, especially men. Perhaps the hardest thing any of us will ever do, gentlemen, is to give our hearts to Jesus and hear our wives say, I've been praying for you. I knew you would. I win. Isn't it funny how we get into that mentality? So somehow saying yes to God is letting her win. Sometimes it's the other way around. If that's that's a dumb reason to go to hell. If you need to stand, let's be bold about it. Stand right now. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Our brother is Shear. I'd like to close with a peer-dependent king here. 1 Kings 12, verse 8, we read, But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and served him. And he asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell the people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than your father's waist. This young king, the first major decision of his administration, was asked to lower the taxes. He consulted with the elders, and they said, you better do it. Lower the taxes. Give the people what they're asking for confirm your throne because the people could rebel. You could almost hear them saying you can always raise the taxes later. But then he went and consulted with his pals that he'd grown up with. And they said, don't let these people push you around, Rehoboam. You let them tell you what to do now, they'll be telling you for the rest of your life. You show them who's boss. You raise the taxes. And so Rehoboam listened to the counsel of his age mates, and the kingdom of God was torn to pieces. It was prophesied by God that it would happen, but the way it happened was that the wisest man who ever lived failed to let his own son walk with him. In other words, you can know all the answers. You can know what the Bible says. You can walk out of here tonight, maybe even with goosebumps, and still go out and do some pretty foolish things. It's not just knowing the truth. It's being a doer of it. As James says, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so tonight, as our brother has suggested, it's time to rededicate our lives to serving the Lord as an individual. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Ephesians 2.10, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's got a plan. Saving you puts you into that plan. Now, let's fulfill it. Let's work it out. We serve God not in order to be saved, but because by His grace we are saved. We don't earn our salvation. We don't pay for it afterwards. We didn't get it on installment plan. But we're doing these things because they're right, because they are fulfillment of God's plan for us. And I also ask for a commitment to serve the Lord as a household. God has put you together. I believe He wants you to serve Him together. In Joshua 24 and verse 15, I think there's something here for us that's not often seen because we rush so quickly to the last line. It says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers, that is pure and simple tradition. People who are religious because their parents were religious. It says, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. That's the gods of your culture, popular culture. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So you've got three choices. You can either serve God. Or you will end up either falling into the pattern of your tradition, as if, you know, it could be anything. You name the religion, you could end up just being another one of those kind of families in that kind of religious background and going on. Or you could fall into the pattern of this world around you, become a new ager, you know, do something like that, pick up on the, the religion of our culture. You see, you'll you'll serve one of those three. You will. Don't think you're going to get away and not serve one of those. You will serve one of those three. Which is it going to be? And I believe too many of us in the body of Christ today have been guilty of either serving the gods of our forefathers or the God of our culture that's around us, and we have not been serving the God of biblical revelation as revealed in the Word of God. There could be no Martin Luther's, if all we ever did was follow in the traditions of our forefathers. You won't homeschool if you're just going to follow in the traditions of your forefathers. And I assure you, you won't homeschool if you just decide to follow the culture of the day. But if you will serve the Lord as a household, you're going to start doing things differently than your forefathers and differently than the culture all around you, and you're going to start serving the Lord the way He instructs you to serve Him in His holy word. And that's what I'm asking you to do tonight. I'm asking you to rededicate your lives to serving the God of Revelation. As He reveals Himself to you, to do what He says, even if it is the equivalent of of building an ark in your backyard, to do it, and to do it boldly, and to accept the consequences of having done it. And so tonight, if that's the cry of your heart, if you say, oh God, I want to serve you with my household, and I want my home to be an embassy of the kingdom of God, and I want my children to be arrows aimed for your glory at targets you'd be pleased with, and I want to be that wise man, I want to chew on things worth sharing, I want these things to be on my heart. And I'd like you to stand right now. Praise God. Praise the Lord. That's exciting. The Lord must be dealing with a lot of people. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of serving you tonight. Lord, we thank You for the privilege of standing before You tonight as a monument to our decision to rededicate ourselves and our households to Your purpose. Lord, as we go to our places of rest tonight, may we covenant together with our spouses, with our children, to be a household of faith and to begin the adventure of serving You as you've revealed yourself in your word. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.